Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? We doing good? Laura reminded me that it was like 85 degrees yesterday, and the week before it was snowing. Welcome to Cincinnati. Well, if you don't know, if you didn't know before today, um, as David mentioned, we are part of Acts 29 Network, and means we're committed to planting churches together uh, with other churches around the country and around the world. And so this Church Plant Sunday is an annual opportunity for us to focus and highlight on church planting and to pray that God would raise up more leaders to plant more churches. And so uh, we are a church plant, although we're more of a church adolescent now. (laughs) We're about 13 years old, but we were planted first in 2010, and church planting has been in our DNA ever since then. We support directly or indirectly uh, lots of churches around the world. So our, our sister church, Christ the King Eastern Hills, we planted that in 2014, and uh, we directly support financially and through coaching and in other ways about a half a dozen churches, um, uh, mostly around here in the city, but around, around the country too. Um, indirectly, we support hundreds of church plants because we're part of a couple of different church planting uh, sending agencies that we support, and we'll continue to do that. Um, so one of the things I'll say about this is that uh, a couple years ago, um, we mentioned a 20-year plan for our church was to plant four more churches in the four corners of Cincinnati in the next 20 years. COVID slowed it down a bit, uh, but that's still a goal, that's still a desire, and we're still praying for that. And so I invite you to continue praying for that and uh, check out the brochures that we've put on the various seats around you and uh, you know, use those as opportunities to get involved as, as, they're, as they're prompted on those, uh, on those brochures. All right. Um, We're doing a series in the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, and this is the story where Jesus calls Levi to be a disciple, and Jesus calling Levi to be a disciple offended some people, the Pharisees, because they didn't think that Jesus should be hanging out with sinners like Levi, because he was a tax collector, And that conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees provided a teaching opportunity for Jesus to talk about the call of discipleship and his mission as the Messiah. And so this text also has application for us about self-righteousness and the pursuit of holiness and the church's mission. So we'll go through the story and then I'll uh, have some application for us at the end. Let's dig in and turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And we'll start off here by looking at Levi, the sinful tax collector, verse 27. After this, he, meaning Jesus, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. We'll pause here for a second. Levi's a tax collector. In Jesus' day, tax collectors were especially hated. 
They were considered vile people, the scum of the earth. And that's because the Roman government employed them, they're Jewish people, but the Roman government employed tax collectors to collect taxes from their own people. And the Roman government gave them authority to use whatever means necessary to get money from their fellow Jews. So they were seen as traitors. And frankly, they were extortionists. They would use bullying and intimidation tactics to get people to pay heavy taxes to them because they skimmed a cut off the top before uh, they sent other, the, the total tax bill to Rome. So that's Levi. Levi is a tax collector. Now, we don't know him by that name. We know him by his more common name, which is Matthew. Matthew is the, the man who authored the Gospel of Matthew. But in the Gospel stories, he's referred to as Levi. So we'll, t- we'll call him Levi today. So here's Levi sitting at the tax booth, doing what he does, extorting people, bullying and intimidating people, taking their money. And Jesus comes along. And Jesus came along and looked him in the eye, and he offered Levi the opportunity to have a new life. Now, Jesus was this prominent young rabbi. He had already started to gain a reputation as a healer, a miracle worker, a powerful teacher, one on whom the Spirit of God had come. And so this man, Jesus, comes along, and he says to the other man, Levi, the tax collector, follow me. And then Levi left everything, it says. Leaving everything, meaning he walked away from his booth. He walked away from whatever he had collected, presumably. He walked away from his livelihood, from everything that he had, his old life. And that's what you would expect. If you're going to follow somebody, literally follow somebody, you're going to have to leave where you are and go where they're going. That's what Levi did. Levi didn't merely accept Jesus into his heart and continue life as he had before. Levi left his old life and then followed Jesus into a new life. If you remember earlier, there was a um, Luke chapter 5, verse 11. This is a sermon Cameron preached a uh, week before Easter. It's the story of Peter, where Jesus appeared to Peter, and uh, he, he, uh, Peter saw Jesus, and he said, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, Don't worry about that. We're going to have you catching men from now on. And then Peter, it says, he left everything and followed Jesus. It's the same thing Levi does here. Both, in both instances, the text says they left everything to follow Jesus. We call this repentance. Repentance is leaving your old life. The word repentance literally means turning away and turning towards something different, something new. And so whenever you follow Jesus, you are choosing to leave everything, to leave your old life Repent of your sins, to walk away from those things, and to follow Jesus in a new way of life, a new course. So there is, simply put, there is no Christianity without repentance. Repentance is built in to what it means to follow Christ. You have to walk away from the old life. You have to leave where you are and go where you're being led to follow Jesus. There is no Christianity without repentance. That's why our mission statement says that we are helping people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord of all of life. Because obedience is part of the Christian life. Repentance of our old life and obeying Jesus in, our, in the new life with Christ, that's what we do. 
So these two, three verses here, 27 to 29, it's like a little micro-narrative of the gospel. Levi was a great sinner who repented and followed Jesus. Jesus is a great Savior who called him and forgave him. A little micro-narrative of the gospel in these verses. And this is Jesus' mission. Jesus says elsewhere later on in the gospel of Luke chapter 19, he said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that's what he did here with Levi. He sought him out. He saw him there. He called him and he saved him. And so Jesus' work of seeking and saving the lost requires them to repent, to leave everything, and to follow him and to obey him. Now, we could just stop there. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's the good news of the gospel that we need to hear all the time. So we could just stop there and go home, but we're not going to do that because the story goes on. There's something else that takes place. There's more to this story. There's these guys that step into the story at this point called the Pharisees. We haven't met the Pharisees yet in this gospel of Luke because they just kind of appear onto the scene out of nowhere. They're not in the Old Testament. They're not introduced. They just show up in the gospel stories. But the Pharisees, they didn't like what they just saw. Levi threw this great banquet for Jesus. He threw a party. There's a celebration of Jesus. And all of Levi's tax collector friends showed up to celebrate with him. Jesus showed up and he's there with these tax collectors and sinners and he's having a good time with them. So the Pharisees saw this. And they thought sinners like Levi have no business interacting and associating with a rabbi, a member of the Jewish leadership like, like Jesus. Good Jews like Jesus don't associate with sinners like Levi. So let's talk about the Pharisees, the self-righteous Pharisees. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the Pharisees are the villains in many stories of the Bible. They were known for this rigid, legalistic adherence to the Old Testament law so much so that they would even add new rules to the Old Testament law. They would make up some of their own just for good measure to make sure that nobody violated any commandment of the Bible. And so they're grumbling to the disciples here because Jesus is intermingling the sacred with the profane. Jesus is mixing things that don't belong together. He was sharing table fellowship with vile people, tax collectors and sinners, and that's a taboo, according to the Pharisees. Now, at first glance, we might think, well, the Pharisees, they're just protecting the reputation of the Jewish faith. And that's a good thing, to, to protect the reputation, to make sure that nobody is, is committing this overt sin. But as Luke's gospel unfolds, we find out more and more and more about these Pharisees, and we realize what really motivated them. They were motivated by envy and by self-righteousness. Luke chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus said, The Pharisees tried to justify themselves before men, but God knew their hearts. 
course, Jesus is God, so Jesus knew their hearts. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, says the Pharisees trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. So their problem was not their desire to obey God. That's a good thing. Their problem was an arrogant self-righteousness that led them to treat others with contempt. So the Pharisees, they gained social status from having tax collectors and sinners aplenty by having these people around, making them feel better. And that's why they were so annoyed that Jesus would associate with and forgive people like that. So here's Levi, this repulsive man, this scum of the earth, this extortionist, this greedy swindler, this horrible, wretched human being, and he's... Jesus is associating with him, not because Jesus loves all of those sins, but because Levi repented. Levi left that old life. Levi trusted Jesus. He followed Jesus. He was forgiven, and he responded by honoring Jesus with the feast and invited all of his friends to come over so that they too can know and experience the sort of life and forgiveness that he had received. And the more Jesus forgave sinners like Levi, the more irrelevant and unnecessary and ignored the Pharisees became. Well, they're not having that. Now, we need to keep something in mind here. The Pharisees were not Christians. The Pharisees, they're not believers, right? I mean, like, Jesus, it, it is clear from Jesus' interaction with them that they are, they are the enemies of, of God's God's purpose, right? They're, they are not Christians. They didn't follow Jesus. So these are, these are sinful uh, men. But Jesus did interact with them a lot because their presence on the scene was keeping people from believing in Jesus and entering the kingdom of God. So Jesus had to oppose the, the dominant influence in the lives of the Jewish people of the day in order for them to in order for those people to see Jesus and follow Jesus. We'll, get to, we'll say more about that in a moment. Now let's look at the Savior. You notice these all start with us. You're getting extra Baptist today. The sinner, the self-righteous, and the, the Savior. I didn't even get that from a commentary. I just came up with that all by myself. <laughs> all right. Uh, verse 31, the Savior. Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let me read that verse 32 again. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the Pharisees, they grumbled about Jesus. Jesus responds to their complaint with this statement I just read. Let me make two quick observations. The first is that Jesus came as a physician, not a judge. He came as a healer, right? He came to offer a way of life. So he came as a physician. Now, we skipped over a couple of stories from the last story we read in Luke um, in this series. And in those two stories, the reason why we skip over them is that the themes of those stories are represented in other stories, and we'll get to those uh, in due course. 
But in those two stories, there was Jesus who healed a leper and Jesus who healed a paralytic. Now, in those stories, Jesus touched people and he healed them. In the case of the leper, he was considered unclean, right? So whenever Jesus touched him, something unexpected happened. According to the Old Testament law, Jesus would have become defiled, but Jesus cannot be defiled. He is the essence of purity. So instead of Jesus becoming defiled, the leper became clean like Jesus was. And so Jesus reached out and touched a man who knew that he could not touch anyone. Jesus healed him. The second story of the paralytic is, is even more striking because Jesus healed him, but before he healed him, he told him, your sins are forgiven, which is not what he was there and uh, asking about. So Jesus healed this paralytic to demonstrate his authority to forgive sins. And that's why he healed him. So Jesus came to rescue sinners. Jesus came to heal, and his healing power was a demonstration of his authority to heal people spiritually, to forgive sins. That's the first observation. The second observation comes from verse 32, whenever Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous. Now, that's, that sounds odd for a number of reasons. Now, the word righteous here, we need to understand in context, in the context of the whole Bible, that this does not mean that the Pharisees are righteous. But I do think Jesus says it this way to, allow, to, to, to highlight their hardness of heart. Whenever we read the word righteous in this verse, we should think of that as self-righteous. Self-righteous. Jesus is not indicating that there are those people out there who don't need salvation. And he certainly isn't saying that the Pharisees would be those people who don't need salvation because they're righteous. Absolutely not. The scriptures teach no one is righteous before God. That's Romans 3 and everywhere else too. (laughs) The second is that the call to repentance is universal. Nobody is exempt from the call to repent. So everyone needs to repent of their sins. So the righteous that Jesus is talking about here are those who are self-righteous, those who think that they are righteous. So Jesus' point is that those who think they are already righteous don't see their, their need for the salvation he provides. That is precisely the problem the Pharisees had. To put it bluntly, Self-righteous sinners don't repent. Self-righteous sinners don't repent. They never do because they think they don't need to. They think they're already righteous. It's a, it's a, it's a hardness of a heart, and they need the Holy Spirit to break that hardness of heart in order to recognize their sin and their need for the Savior. But in that state, self-righteous people will never repent. In Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says something similar. This is at the, in the, the series of stories about lost and found, the prodigal son, and so forth. Luke 15, 7, Jesus said, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Again, Jesus is not saying, oh, the vast majority of people in the world are righteous and don't need to repent. But there's like one out of a hundred 
those are the sinners that I want to save. That, that is not what Jesus is saying. I have to recognize Jesus is referring to self-righteous people who think themselves beyond the need for saving. They think that they're already righteous. And so Jesus is speaking with a hyperbole here, and in so doing, those like us who are Christians, who believe in Jesus, we can see what, that he is speaking in a particular way to highlight the hardness of heart of the self-righteous Pharisees. The Pharisees were blinded to their own need for repentance. Now, this can happen, though, right? A Pharisee can repent. A few years later, there's this young man named Saul, and he was a Pharisee. He hated Christians. He persecuted the church. But Jesus appeared to him with this blinding light, knocked him off his high horse, and said, in a manner of speaking, follow me, which he did. Of course, we know him as the Apostle Paul. He repented. He left everything. He followed Jesus. And he's, thank God for the Apostle Paul, this self-righteous Pharisee who repented and followed Jesus. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You see, the, the gospel had really worked in Paul's heart in such a way that he saw himself as a chief of sinners. He repented of his self-righteousness and he received forgiveness. Now, since self-righteous sinners don't repent, we see what Jesus said here in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Meaning that he's going to focus his time and his energy and his effort on those that are willing to receive the gospel. Willing to follow him. And he's going to oppose the self-righteous Pharisees that don't think they need to repent. So Jesus focused his time and energy on humble sinners who did. Now, I've got three application points. Three application points, and these are broadly um, about the issues of self-righteousness, about the pursuit of holiness, and about our mission, our mission as a church. So here's the first one. Did I say three? Maybe it's four. Yeah, I've got four. So bonus. Uh, four, four application points. It's like I'm writing my sermon, and I think of three, but then when I get towards the end, I'm like, oh, there's another one. And then I add it in, but I forget to go back and edit the previous. Four points, note takers. Number one, obeying Jesus isn't legalism. It's not self-righteous to obey Jesus. Obedience is part of the program. It's baked into the cake. Following Jesus is what Christians do. Leaving our old life and following Jesus, pursuing holiness, that's simply what Christians are called to do. And it isn't legalism for Christians to do that. Nor is it legalistic or judgmental or self-righteous to expect other Christians to do the same, right? Or even to rebuke other Christians whenever they are in sin and they are not obeying Jesus, I say this for, for a simple reason, and that's some people think it's legalistic to pursue holiness. Or they, they act as though a person who is striving to be obedient to Jesus is being self-righteous. Oftentimes they're accused of being pharisaical or judgmental. 
And then Christians can often be lectured by the world about how self-righteous and judgmental we are when we are simply obeying Jesus. We're following Jesus. We're living a life of repentance and faith. That isn't legalistic. That's not self-righteous or judgmental. That's being a follower of Jesus. That's doing what Christians are supposed to do. So Christian, just let me encourage you in this. Your desire for holiness, for obedience, is not a, not a problem. Your desire for holiness and obedience is a fruit of the gospel because you're following Jesus the way he called you to. Number two, calling on non-Christians to repent and follow Jesus is not legalism. Calling on non-Christians to repent and to follow Jesus, that isn't legalism either. Verse 32, Jesus said he came to call sinners to repentance. Who are sinners? Sinners are people in the world that sin, and they don't believe in Jesus. And Jesus came to call them not to accept him into their hearts, but he came to call them to repentance, to call them to obedience, to call them to a life of following Jesus, just the way he did with Levi. So Jesus' stated mission, Jesus told his non-followers that they needed to repent and follow him. And the same goes for us. Preaching the gospel to non-Christians may include identifying the very sins that they need to repent of. That doesn't make us legalists. That doesn't make us self-righteous Pharisees. That means that we're doing the very thing Jesus did and called us to do. So we are Christ's ambassadors, right? 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus has sent us into the world to speak with courage and moral clarity. Now, I say these things because I hear rumblings along these lines that go like this. If you talk about XYZ sin issue in the church, it'll turn people off to the gospel. And all I can say in response is that it's almost always XYZ sin issue that they need to repent of and be forgiven for. That is the very issue that, that needs to be addressed in order for them to find life in Christ. And it's not wrong to, to identify that. So there's this mission strategy that, that I hear about from time to time. And, of course, the mission strategy is, is not overtly stated, like, here's what you have to do. It's often more subtle than that. It's kind of implied. But the mission strategy goes like this. Well, we need to avoid talking about sin issues and idols and just preach the gospel. Right? So what's implied in that statement? To just preach the gospel means, well, we're just going to tell them to receive Jesus into their heart, but we're not going to call them to repent of specific sins that Jesus died for and wants to free them from. So it doesn't work, and there's two reasons why it doesn't work. One, you're calling them to repent without telling them what they need to repent of. Number two... Well, before I get to number two, that, that, it's like a bait-and-switch tactic. And, and that bait-and-switch tactic means that we're going we're gonna to front-load all the, like the forgiveness and things like that, but we're not going to specify what you need to be forgiven of. We're not going to specify what you need to repent of. 
We're just going to tell you that you're vaguely forgiven, which just becomes more of a psychological and therapeutic uh, category for them. But there isn't any real-world action associated with that forgiveness. So it's a bait-and-switch, and I think that it leads to false conversions because you've never really confronted the idol of their heart. You haven't addressed the real sin issue. And here's why I think you get false conversions, which is the second reason why it doesn't work. If they make a profession of faith, the moment that the real sin issue comes up, they're going to run away. Oftentimes, that's what happens. Because if there's a thing that they're self-righteous about, they don't feel they need to repent of, they don't want to repent of, you can either deal with it when you're preaching the gospel to them, or you can deal with it two or three years later when that issue comes up, but they didn't realize it was an issue because you never brought it up. Many Christians know this is true. Many Christians know that that'll happen, right? So what we can end up doing is avoiding the real idols altogether, and we, we avoid it to keep people from leaving. This, my friends, is how you end up with compromised liberal churches, and you get there all in the name of mission. You think you're doing the right thing. You think you're protecting the church from some harmful or bad outcome. But really, you're, you're, you're creating problems because you're not dealing with the real issues. Some Christians would seem concerned that talking about sin and repentance makes people uncomfortable, right? It can even make people feel judged. And of course, we're pretty sensitive to the accusation of being judgmental, aren't we? That's the last thing any Christian wants to be. No Christian wants to be judgmental. No Christian wants to be accused of being a self-righteous Pharisee. And that is the surest way to silence Christians in their prophetic witness. Just accuse them of being judgmental. But have you considered that that discomfort that people feel may be a convicting of the Holy Spirit that will lead them to repentance. Think about this. I mentioned Peter. What was Peter's reaction whenever Jesus spoke to him and he was in the boat? Whenever Jesus first called out to Peter, what did Peter say in response to Jesus? Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. What do those words tell you about how Peter felt? How do you think Peter felt in that moment? It sounds to me like Peter felt uncomfortable. You could go so far as to say Peter might have felt dirty in that moment. And so... Whenever somebody feels uncomfortable or dirty, unclean, what's your first instinct? You want to get away from that thing. You want to say, depart from me. Get away from me. I don't want that thing around. He wanted to get away. He wanted to make the feeling go away. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus spoke grace into that thing, into that feeling. Peter, there is Peter feeling ashamed, feeling dirty, feeling uncomfortable. And Jesus spoke grace to him. Do you remember what he said? Jesus said, don't be afraid. Jesus spoke grace into that feeling. 
And then Jesus gave him a new purpose. He said, hey, you've been catching fish all your life. I'm going to tell you what. You're going to catch men from now on. I want to give you something glorious and wonderful to do. And what did Peter do? He repented. He believed. He received forgiveness. And he left everything and followed Jesus. Here's my third application point. Self-righteous people don't repent. Self-righteous people don't repent. Self-righteous people are hard to reach because they don't see their need to repent. Why don't they see the need to repent? What is there to repent of? I'm already righteous. And so a person, a self-righteous person, needs to first recognize their unrighteousness before they will ever repent. That's why Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous. They don't see the need to repent. They're not going to listen anyway. So whenever a Christian calls something sinful that the other person thinks is a virtue, it can even reinforce their self-righteous pride. So Christians, we can say, hey, this, this XYZ thing is a sin, and the very thing that you are saying is a sin in their minds, they're like, no, that's my jam. That's my calling card. That's the best thing about me. They're not going to repent of that thing because they don't see any need to repent of it. And oftentimes, they will even feel as though they have the moral authority to attack you for pointing it out in the first place because you're the problem, you self-righteous judge, you Pharisee. And so as Christians, we can be shamed into not speaking up or we can be shamed into changing our mind and thinking that the thing we thought was bad, well, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's actually a good thing. Maybe I've been wrong all along. Remember, the Pharisees were not Christians. They did not follow Jesus. They were non-Christians who represented a specific danger And their danger was that they opposed Jesus and kept people from entering the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus interacted with them. We often misidentify Pharisees as a type of Christian, a self-righteous Christian, rather than a self-righteous non-Christian. Now, I'm not saying Christians are above being self-righteous or pharisaical. We'll get to that in just a moment. But I am saying that in the New Testament... The Pharisees, in these interactions Jesus has with them, he's interacting with non-Christians who are opposing the purposes of God and who are preventing people from entering the kingdom of God. One scripture, Matthew 23, verse 13. Listen to this. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. It's kind of harsh, Jesus, but he's Jesus. He's speaking the truth, and he spoke truth in in an appropriate way. 
I was at a conference this week, uh, and I heard um, speaker Kevin DeYoung. He spoke about uh, secular Pharisees. He said that these are the Pharisees uh, of our day, pretty similar, but they represent just a different religion. They represent a secular religion. And I want to ex- explain this to you. These secular Pharisees are like the self-appointed guardians of the woke purity codes, and they enforce them ruthlessly. There's another pastor that talked about this a few years ago. His name is Joe Rigney, and he wrote about this, and I found it helpful. Now, what he was writing um, a week or two after the Supreme Court passed their Obergefell decision, which made gay marriage the law of the land. And so he was writing about... Um, LGBTQ activists, that's what he noticed, who were celebrating that ruling with a smug, self-righteous superiority. And that reminded him of the prodigal son story, but with a twist. The prodigal son and the elder brother had been kind of combined and merged into a new character, which is like the self-righteous elder brother and the prodigal son. So here's what he said. He said, secular Pharisees embrace the debauchery and unrighteousness of the younger brother with all the smugness and self-righteousness of the older brother. It would be as though the younger brother came home from his journey with a prostitute on each arm and demanded that the father continue to fund his cocaine habit. Dad, I know I'm a debauched pig feeder and I'm proud of it. Now where's my robe and my ring? Oh, and I think you owe it to me to kill the fatted calf and have a party in my honor for all my friends. And a parade. Oh, and bake me a cake, or I'll sue you for everything you have. So Rigney called this legalistic licentiousness. The kind that seeks the enforced celebration of its sinfulness. And this is a high-handed rebellion. The kind that seeks to redefine reality in its own image. To unfaithfully name the world by calling evil good and good evil. This type of legalistic licentiousness is alive and well in our day, and part of our challenge is to learn to recognize it and to resist it, just like Jesus resisted the Pharisees of his day. And we must resist it while at the same time being the sort of church that rejoices every time a prodigal returns. Yes and amen. That's our challenge. So here's my point. Our mission as a church does not require us to accommodate self-righteous secular Pharisees. Our mission is to reach humble sinners like Levi, like so many of you who became Christians through the ministry of this church. And what concerns me is that we might allow self-righteous secular Pharisees to dictate to us the terms of our mission. We can become so worried about not offending the Pharisees that we miss opportunities to reach the Levites. So here's the thing. There's a lot of humble sinners out there. People who know they are sinners. And they would leave everything and they would follow Jesus if we called them to do so. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Those who are sinful and they know it, not the self-righteous. Here's my fourth point. Guard your heart against self-righteous pride. Here's where we deal with our own 
temptation to become self-righteous ourselves. Guard your heart against self-righteous pride, meaning don't justify yourself at the expense of others. I think a lot of Christians probably relate to Pharisees easier than tax collectors. Especially if you grew up in church. Because you were taught at an early age right from wrong. You were taught to honor God with your life and with your behavior. But now in the modern world, things seem to be happening where we're encountering greater and greater evils all the time. Now on an almost daily basis, we hear about things happening in the world that are shockingly evil and vile. And that awareness, that, that witnessing these evils in the world, that can provoke within us an emotional reaction. You feel it. It upsets you. It worries you. It makes you afraid. It can even make you angry. Whenever that happens, whenever you feel that way, the answer is to not say, well, it's not a big deal, or that's not evil, or I'm just being self-righteous. No, the, what you do in that moment is you recognize it as a temptation to become self-righteous. Watch your heart. Pay attention to your heart, because self-righteousness feeds on those kinds of emotions. And in a really weird way, it can feel good to be disgusted by the evils around us. Man, those evils are disgusting. But that disgust can come from a place within us of self-righteous pride where we hold the others committing those evils with contempt. Moral outrage can be fun. It's evil, but it can be fun. It feels good because it feels righteous. Think about this. The next time you feel a sort of moral indignation towards somebody else for something that is genuinely evil, reflect on that in your heart and be like, why? Like, does, this feels kind of good in a way because I've, I'm at least feeling the assurance that I'm righteous. But we're not supposed to feel righteous based on comparing ourselves to other people. That's what Pharisees do. We're supposed to feel righteous because we have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we feel righteous. We feel righteous because our consciences have been cleansed and we have been declared clean. We've been forgiven. That's what makes us feel righteous. But it feels righteous to be outraged at others and that's why we do it. It feels good to have horrible sinners around us to make us feel better about ourselves. That's dangerous. And if that's you, if you're a self-righteous Pharisee, self-righteous, judgmental person, repent, believe the gospel, receive forgiveness, and then come, follow Jesus. That's where we'll end it today. Jesus came to save sinners. People who are sinful and they know it. People like us. Jesus called us to follow him. That's what Christians do. We leave everything behind. Jesus did not accommodate the Pharisees of his day, and neither should we accommodate the Pharisees of our day. Whether that's the Pharisees 
within us that are Christians that are becoming self-righteous, nor the secular Pharisees of the world, we do not accommodate Phariseeism. But we do maintain a humble posture for, before God and adopt repentance and faith as a whole lifestyle and guard against the temptation to become self-righteous ourselves. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to call sinners to repentance. We thank you that you have come by us in whatever tax booth or rebellion or hard-heartedness or sinful condition that we were in. And you looked at us and you said, follow me. And we thank you, Jesus, that not because of any righteousness within ourselves did we follow you, but because you granted it to us by your spirit that we would respond in faith to that invitation. Jesus, thank you that you called us to repentance and you went all the way to the cross and you bled and suffered and died so that we might be justified counted righteous, made clean, forgiven. And Jesus, we thank you that you invite us to your banquet. And we come to your table and we celebrate the life and the forgiveness that we have. And so as we come now to this table, Jesus, thank you that you have joined us and we are having a good time with you, feasting on the body and the blood that you have given up for us. Lord, I do pray that you will forgive us for any type of sin that we bring here to the table today. And may we be humbled in your presence and that we will repent, and that we'll leave it behind, and that we will follow Jesus. We pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.